Welcome back, everyone, to another installment of the Startup Series. Uh, today, we are in for a really, really special episode as we have the founder of Verve Super Fund, Christina Hobbs. Now, I was staggered to learn that Australian women retire with 35% less super than males. 35%. That is crazy. And that's where Verve and Christina, who founded the company, come into it. They have set up a super fund, a superannuation fund by women for women. And not only is it targeting women to uplift them and make sure that that 35% less number is obliterated, but they are focusing only on making ethical investments. So improving the world at the same point in time. And if that sounds too nice to believe, not only that, their returns so far are outperforming most other super funds. It's quite an incredible business and Christina is quite an incredible founder. Our conversation takes all sorts of twists and turns. We hear about Verve, how she started the super fund, but also about her, her personal experiences. She has had such a diverse career and it's really interesting to see how she ended up in the startup space. I won't give it away now, but listen to the episode and you'll hear about her incredible story and the impact that Verve is having. As always, there are some nuggets in the episode, great learning points for you to think about. Keep your ears out for IP-related stuff, how Chrissy is actually building Verve, um, her relationship with another super fund, and what are some IP implications. So have a think about that and enjoy the episode. Hi, Chrissy. Hi, thanks for having me on. No problem. It is um, so excited to have you on. It's really cool when I get to speak with uh people and entrepreneurs who I know personally and then get an opportunity to ask them questions that I have never asked them before. So we worked with each other for a while with you and Verve and, and Luna. So I know a little bit about your background, but I did some digging. So <laughs> to, start, to start off, I did, did some digging as everyone does. And usually when you dig up on an entrepreneur, an early stage founder, you Google them, you look at videos and images and try try to see what they've done. And it's almost always the same. It's okay, they've presented at this demo day. You can see this video. There's maybe one or two podcasts. Then, you know, they're listed on a VC's website and there might be a, a profile. But when I searched you, the internet crashed <laughs> <laughs> because there was... All my cat videos. Yeah, there's not normal founder stuff. That's a joke, what, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. I didn't actually... There was so much stuff I didn't find the cat videos, but I'm talking about ABC News, Today Show, UN video clips, parliamentary videos. This is not the normal background, I guess, of the typical first-time entrepreneur that we see in Australia. But before we get into that, I have to ask because I sort of got into a bit of a YouTube hole on you. Um, I wanted to know what your favorite interview of all time that you have done. That's so funny because... Um... I was hoping you were going to ask me my worst interview of all time and I was already trying to go through which one was the absolute worst one. Well, we're going to have to, we're uh, going to, have to do that as well. <laughs> um, my favourite video of all time. Um, I think it was probably, I don't even know if it's still up, but I did sort of like an eight-minute um, ABC interview when we first launched Verve and 
that's probably my favourite of all time, mostly because I'd had to personally hustle to get the coverage. And so I remember sitting there in the seat about to go on air and just thinking, it doesn't really matter how well or how badly this goes. Um, I just felt delighted that through pure hustle, I was on the news talking about my business, which was launching. So that was probably my favourite of all time. Amazing. I actually did happen to watch that one and I loved it. But now I have to ask, because you mentioned it, what's the worst of all time? I probably had two really bad ones. Um, there was a one when I was running for the Senate where I'd been inspired by another woman who was in the Senate who I felt always had a really positive and happy demeanour. And so I decided to bring that into an interview that I did again to the ABC. But unfortunately, that interview was on um, rates of domestic violence. It was on a very serious topic. And I remember sort of trying to have this face that was serious yet also made me look positive and uplifting. And the coverage was just <laughs> awful. I looked sort of like I was somehow happy about what I was saying. So there was that one um, that didn't go down well, but probably the worst one of all time, which you might have seen, it was the BBC interview when I was in Iraq. And um, I was running very late coming out of Morsel, which you might remember was um, an area that was really um, held under ISIS and we had to get through all these checkpoints to get out and I'd missed my sound check and I got to the hotel. It was only about 20 minutes before the interview and they're all calling me, asking where I am, can I do the checks? I still wasn't dressed, so I had to sort of get dressed. So I found a room to do the interview in and then all the lights in the hotel went out. Um, and so I was sitting there in pitch blackness, scrabbling, trying to get desk lamps and the electricity came back on again. And then about two minutes before the interview, it went, all went off again. Um, and so it was just me with my mobile phone sort of wandering and then the electricity came back on again, but the lamps had blown out. Um, and so there was no light. And so it was just this, they were literally counting me in and one, one person was counting and the other person was like trying to tell me to get the lamps up and down. And so it ended up that I was sort of crouching down on my knees, trying to get this one bit of light, um, just completely startled. And so it was a very funny sort of interview. Oh my God, that sounds crazy. There are so many things there. Uh, tell me, what, what, what were you doing in Iraq? Yeah. I mean, we have to go there. <laughs> yeah. My career just took all these bizarre turns, but um, I'd started with the UN about 10 years before on an Australian government-funded position working as an economist. And just things just went crazy with the industry where the whole industry shifted from giving people things like food or like water or sanitization to if markets were functioning, giving people cash. Um, and so my career took this turn where I started working in emergency situations. So I worked in Syria, Somalia, all the sort of big um, conflicts and natural disasters over the last 10 years, setting up emergency cash tra transfer platforms. So using iris scanning technology, mobile money, um, trying to um, give people cash in order to meet their basic needs. And through that, just ended up in a career really in humanitarian work. So um, I was in Iraq working for the UN World Food Program um, and most of the work I was doing was um, focused on a few areas that were held by ISIS in Iraq. So Mosul was sort of one of the last strongholds and um, because the area had been under siege for about six months, there'd been no food supplies in or out. So we were trying to negotiate um, getting food supplies in, doing aerial drops of food, um, when it did get liberated, um, then trying to support um, school meals to bring children back into schools and generally just trying to support um, the rebuilding of that, of that city and the, the efforts to try to bring back some form of normalcy. 
Incredible. So humanitarian work, um, your background and journey to starting Verve is taking a, a few twists and turns with the humanitarian work being one of them. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what's your journey been to actually start Verve and then why did you become a founder after yeah, trying to save the world? I wanted a more relaxing job. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, so yeah, it's been an interesting career. I, I studied psychology and um, economics, finance at university. Um, just one day listened to somebody who came to the university talking about management consulting. That sounded exciting. I liked the idea of doing lots of different things and not always working in the same space. Um, ended up getting a management consulting job out of university and worked for a couple of years in that, um, mostly in the financial services sector. And then one day just had that classic sort of anxiety attack. What the hell am I doing with my life? Um, you know, just sort of, I was in Sydney at the time. I remember streaming out, out through Martin Place in suits and with all these other people in suits and going up to the ninth floor in a suit and everyone else was there in their suits and just thinking this is not for me. And I think I just really lost motivation with the whole working really, really hard long hours to help big companies earn more money. I just completely lost motivation. So um, I took what I thought was going to be a year out and it was a great program. The Australian government still does it where they allow or place Australians with some experience into um, lower middle income countries to provide um, assistance for a whole host of organisations. So that was a wonderful experience. I worked with the UN and then ended up staying with them for about 10 or 11 years. And it was during that time, about six odd years ago, I came back to Australia and it was mostly because I'd become really passionate about fighting climate change. And I just really realised um, that, you know, that was really, I felt was a big issue of my time and it exacerbated so many of the situations I'd worked in. So I'd made a decision to come back to Australia and take a year off of paid work. I had some savings to just volunteer for climate organisations. So I spent about a year doing that. Um, really loved it, learnt so much. Um, and during that time, actually realised that my own superannuation was being invested in fossil fuels. So it was being invested in coal and gas. So through that experience, I met um, a couple of guys who were starting the first superannuation in Australia, not so first superannuation fund in Australia, not to invest in fossil fuels. And so worked with them as they prepared to launch and ended up on their board. And ultimately, I went back overseas again. Um, for a couple of years working on the Syria response and in Iraq. And then I came back to Australia and I'd been thinking a lot about superannuation and women in super. And, you know, through my work already in superannuation, I'd realised that women were retiring with around 40% less super than men. Um, it was this huge issue of our time where older women, older single women are now the fastest growing cohort of homeless Australians. And in general, I'd become really passionate about economic inequality between men and women. And so the idea of starting a superannuation fund that was both an ethical fund that could inspire people around ethical investing, that also looked at how we could invest some of the money in the fund into supporting women and, and causes that support diverse Australians. And then also looking at how can we provide the financial coaching and support to people um, focused and tailored for women to support them over time build wealth and of course to build up a community that can advocate um, for policy change for fair retirement. So that was sort of the concept and the culmination of ideas that came together um, that made me think about starting Verve. 
Incredible. Um, I just love hearing founder journeys and sitting back and I guess reflecting just for a second here on, you know, what are the dots that you've done or this founder's done and the connecting pieces. And, and what really sticks out to me is that I guess you, you mentioned you started in economics at university, you go into the corporate world, then you go into the humanitarian world. And now you find yourself in superannuation, which is kind of, I guess, back to that economic corporate-ish type world, but with a humanitarian lens. And it seems like the dots are all joining for you. How did you actually know that you wanted to be a founder though? So it seems very different to, I guess, the journey you were on. How did you actually know you wanted to be a founder? I think I'd, you know, I'd thought about, I've all, you know, I was one of those people that was sort of brainstorming business ideas since high school. Um, and never sort of did any of them. So I think I'd already always sort of had this entrepreneurial um, mindset. And then I think some of the other things I'd done, although it wasn't entrepreneurship, it was entrepreneurial. So um, when I was with the UN, I was always starting new programs in humanitarian settings. And I loved that idea of going in and starting something. Um, and I think similarly with running for the Senate as well, it was you know, in a way, it's like being an entrepreneur. You, you have a campaign, you have to run a campaign, you have to hustle for media, you have to bring volunteers in and inspire them and, um, you know, and, and go out and try to create something and you have to have a purpose to what you're doing. So I think that sort of entrepreneurial mindset had always been there. And then I think the other thing that has really guided me, I think, you know, a lot of people have looked at my career and just been like, what is going on? Like, you just jumped from here to there. But I feel like to me it always made sense and it always made sense because when I felt like I was stagnating, when I felt like I wasn't happy, um, I made moves pretty quickly um, and I think that was um, what really led me into entrepreneurship where I felt at the time that um, I wanted to come back to Australia, I wasn't, I wasn't happy, something wasn't quite right for me. I sort of analysed that and for me that was that I wanted to start something new. I just I didn't want to just be someone that work for an organisation doing something that somebody else could do. I wanted to really start something and create something. And I think um, that desiring me to create impact was going in a direction where I wanted to create new impact. And so I think for me, it was really that, that natural um, next step. And for a long time, there wasn't a question in my mind that I was going to be, uh, I'd start a business or I'd start something. It, it was just what was it going to be and, and what was that entry point to create the impact I wanted to create. Wow. I just love how you applied an entrepreneurial mindset throughout your career. A lot of people think about entrepreneurship as only starting a business, but it seems like you've got great value from testing out that mindset through your journey, working in other organizations before starting Verve and starting your own business. I think there's so many lessons there in what entrepreneurship is and isn't, and it's not one way, I guess. For you, when you went to start the business, you didn't start it alone. How did you form the business or the basis of, of the business? Did you engage people? You've got some co-founders. How did you bring those people together? Yeah, so superannuation by its nature, it's quite a challenging business to start because it's quite regulated. So for good for good reason. Um, if other businesses fail, it's not as significant as if the company that's managing a superannuation fails. So I spent probably about um, eight months working on um, getting the licenses in place and really lining everything up, um, all of our partners, bringing on incredible um, experts that we could work with um, to make certain that we would be able to pass the regulatory kind of um, hurdles in order to be able to launch. 
And then once I knew that um, that was we were going to get through that and that the, we could get the fund off the ground, then I really started thinking, okay, who do I want around me in my team? And there was another woman called Alex Andrews who had also worked in superannuation, in ethical superannuation. We'd often met and discussed and um, we'd been really talking about the issue of women and superannuation and economic empowerment for probably four or five years. So um, it was really natural for me to reach out to her and ask her to be a co-founder in this. And then when we looked at the problem, um, we really felt that we needed to provide this financial coaching element. Um, you know, amongst myself and my friends, just so many of us um, were good at saving but didn't really know how to invest, didn't, you know, some of my friends were in debt, weren't sure how to get out of debt. There was this, this big gap we felt around um, how do we support people to manage their money better. And so I started looking online at financial coaches that were women and were tailoring what they were doing to women. And 99% of them, I just I just did not match my vibe. So, yeah, there was women who were supporting women to learn how to save $1,000 to buy a new pair of shoes. There was a whole lot of, like, pink branding. Um, you know, none, none of it really felt like the kind of empowered, inspired approach that I wanted. And then I met, I saw online this one woman, Zoe, who would start an organisation, a not-for-profit, called 10,000 Girls. She'd financially coached over 10,000 women. Um, I just loved everything about how um, her work looked. And so, unfortunately, her website had been um, hacked and so she'd actually taken all of her contact details off apart from phone number. And so I literally just called her mobile phone number one day and introduced myself and said, I want to start a superannuation fund. Um, how does that sound to you? And she was actually doing some gardening. She was in her rose bed at the time. And we just talked for like an hour and a bit. And then by the end of that phone call, she decided to jump in a car and drive um, two and a half hours to come and meet me um, to discuss how we could do this. And, and in that meeting, she decided to be the third co-founder. So that was really how we came together as, as three people. I love how you just said something there so subtly. You said you picked up the phone to call your future co-founder and say, hey, I'm starting a superannuation fund. Are you in? And with someone obviously with your ambition and you know your experiences, that sounds like maybe a normal thing to say. But I guess reflecting on the other side here, I mean, when if a person were to come to me and said, hey, I'm starting a super fund, you know, it's like someone coming over and saying, hey, I'm starting a new government, you know, <laughs> at this big beast. How do three young, dynamic, relatively new to the startup scene entrepreneurs actually build a super fund and not only build a super fund, build a completely new one that is changing the game for a large amount of people? Yeah, it's a really, um, it's an interesting question. I think reflecting on it, it's so interesting how, so many founders, um, the initial founders in a team don't actually come from that, 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 that industry. They've just identified a problem. And I think in part of that looking back is that we were just wholly unprepared for how difficult this would be. And um, it's so interesting how many women, like I probably had over 100 women come up to me since launching two years ago and say, I've been discussing this for ages. I've had this idea for ages. Um, but all of those women were working in the sector and I think when they were thinking about the idea, they were thinking about the thousands of challenges that they knew would present. Whereas when we were thinking about the idea, we were just seeing the opportunity. We knew it would be difficult, but we didn't have a really good conceptual understanding of that. So 
Um, I think in part of it was naivety. Um, but then I think a big part of it was just, um, you know, I think in, in business it's, it's often said that the, the, the um, you know, the key factors that are behind most successful businesses are relatively always the same. It's, you know, there's a big, there's a big problem that you're trying to solve. Um, you've got a good solution for that problem and that there's a big market um, for, for what you want to do. And I think when I looked at what we wanted to do, we knew that there was a big problem to solve. We knew that so many women were really unsatisfied with financial services. We knew that people wanted to be in ethical investing, but funds weren't doing that. Um, so we saw these big problems. We knew that we could, we knew that the solution that could solve it. Um, and so once we kind of had a hold of that vision and really believed in the potential of it, um, then kind of all that ground grunt work to get it done, it was just that. It, it wasn't going to stop us. It was just what we had to, had to get through. I love the vision focus and it's clear to see how you obviously inspire team members to join. I'm really interested as to why the industry hasn't seen the opportunity here. You know, what's wrong with the incumbents? I mean, it seems obvious that every other super fund is focused on males, but males don't represent a hundred percent of the population. And this is a like from a business point of view, this is a, a growing industry as females stay in work longer and the quality movement gains momentum. Like why, why has industry been so blind to the, business opportunity that is actually obviously here what's wrong with the industry and I guess how what is your secret source to sort of change that yeah I think it's a couple of things I think one is if you just look at where women and money have come from and where we're going is that um, you know in the 1960s in Australia it was still law in Australia that once you got married you had to quit your job if you're a woman um, that was the law. So, so we're just kind of coming through a phase of women being allowed to participate in the workforce, women being able to earn their own income, and then women becoming powerhouses in terms of consumption. So if you look at what happened with brands like uh, 15, 20 years ago, is that they realised that, okay, women are now, this, they're now they're earning money, they've become this huge consumer base. And so we've seen gradually how companies market to women change. We've seen a lot of that really sexist advertising, although it still exists, has started to change because they know that women who are this powerhouse of consumers aren't going to stand for it anymore. Um, and so we've seen these kind of, and we've also seen more ethical products come through, which I think is largely driven by more women coming in and women, you know, particularly, as a lot of men do as well, but particularly women making ethical-based decisions. So we see how women's financial power has kind of come through and changed how products and services are offered. Um, but now we're kind of entering this next sphere where women don't just have money to spend, they're actually building wealth. And I think for a long time that was sort of ignored. So when superannuation funds, when financial planning companies, when um, the wealth building companies or banks um, launch, um, they were serving male clients and they have been for a really long time. So I think they've just been really slow to adjust. And, and again, it's the history. So in the 1980s in Australia, women still needed... Um, their husband's signature to get a home loan or to get a mortgage. So, um, you know, things are, things are transitioning. And um, I think over the last 10 years, there has been this growing awareness that women are now a considerable part of the market. We need to serve them. Um, but a lot of the big financial services brands, they've just ruined their reputations in this space. So, for instance, we've seen the Commonwealth Bank do um, some really good initiatives for women in business. Um, they've got a program called Women in Focus. Um, but after the Banking Royal Commission and all the scandals that have come out, not just through that, but over the past 10 years in relation to the banks, how they've treated women, how they've treated elderly people, 
um, how they've treated dead people. Um, you know, people have lost a lot of faith and trust in these banks um, and these big financial institutions. And so when they come along and do sort of an ad hoc women's program here or an ad hoc program for Indigenous people here, um, people are still not buying into their overall brand, regardless of whether that program is good or not. And I've spoken to um, some men and women who have worked for other financial institutions who have worked in um, some of the financial coaching or some of the aspects of those businesses that have been tailored for women. And what they've found is that they've said, look, this could have been a good program, but there wasn't senior management buying or there was senior management buying, but then senior management changed over and momentum got lost. We never got funded enough for what we wanted to do. And so although we sort of see these tokenistic efforts, no one's really sort of been willing to transform their whole business um, to serve a more diverse audience. And so when we came in and said, look, we accept men, women, non-binary Australians, but we're just going to tailor what we do for women and we're going to do that really earnestly. And when we say we're going to invest ethically, we're not just going to invest ethically, we're going to be an ethical, transparent business and we're happy for you to contribute to our, that, to judge us on that. Um, it's that. It's that honesty and integrity that people are actually buying into. Um, and it's not that we don't make mistakes along the way, it's not that we couldn't do things better, um, but people trust um, that we actually have the right intentions. And I think that's what's really important today. Trust, so important in business. I mean, especially in this time right now, the world that we're in, you know, trust is so, so important. And so you've got this big vision and you're on your way to changing it and you've built up a powerhouse team. What sounds like amazing co-founders. You've got a great partnership in place with an ethical super fund, which enables you to do business. You're taking on investment. There's all these positives. I'm interested to go the other side just for a second. And um, I'm sure it hasn't been smooth sailing the whole way through. So what's been some big hurdles you've faced in Verve since starting the business? What have been some learnings and big do-overs or, or even failures or pivots or things that you've experienced in that time? Yeah, I think the, probably the biggest one I've learned is around capital investment. Um, so we took on an initial investment of $100,000, which sounded quite a like a fair decent amount of money to me, to people listening might sound like a reasonable amount of money. Um, that money went in one second. That was basically our, our legal fees to set up uh, the actual fund. Um, then you've got staff hire, you've got websites, you've got marketing, you've got all these other expenses. Um, and so I think it was a real underestimating of what it would cost us to launch the business in the first place. Um, and also you know, the challenge associated with that of, um, you know, if you start a business, you have to raise capital. Um, most of us don't have a handful of high net worth friends and family members that we can just go out to and, and ask for money. Um, and so the concept of even doing that is, is something that's quite strange to most of us. Um, and so probably I think the biggest lesson for me was that we didn't raise enough money at the beginning. Um, and what that ultimately led to was me remortgaging my house, putting all my savings into the business, um, running our marketing off my credit cards for the first two months. And so what was sort of happening um, until we took on new investment about four or five months after we launched was that there was this period where we were trying to run a business and get a business off the ground and all the stress involved in that. And then also putting myself under this huge financial stress of, um, of not just, okay, now all my eggs are in one basket, not just that, but actually for the first time in probably 15 years, I was actually asking myself, how am I going to make rent this month? 
Um, and, you know, we got through it all. But looking back, that was really a ridiculous situation to put myself in. And I think the real lessons of that was um, like having a very clear understanding of the budget, knowing that budgets always blow out with startups. Um, and then I think the key lesson would be, you know, if you need the money, you have to go out and learn how to raise the money and you can't put that, that decision off. So that was probably my biggest learning and, and really where the biggest stresses of the business have come from. Well, I'm glad to hear that you managed to survive that because so many startup founders, if you like, don't actually get to swim through that period and then, you know, end up unfortunately in a situation, I guess you hear war stories where people have remortgaged their house and now their business is bust and, you know, it's all in and it's really, really hard going. So it's amazing to see that you have swum through that. And now just taking a look to the future, I guess, what's the next step for Verve? What's what's next on the horizon? So we're just doing another capital raise now. So we've still sort of gone for most of the last two years with a very minimal budget. So we've um, been a really small team. We've been very focused on serving the members that we have. And, you know, we do some digital marketing, but it's been very focused on getting people to go out and tell their friends. Um, but we're really excited because we feel like we're in a place now where we know what our members want. We know how to speak to our members. We know who they are. Um, and so this next phase of capital for us is just to really um, boost up the business to allow us to go out and get more members to do more of the financial coaching that we want to do and to really take us to um, closer to that vision of where we want to go to. So I think it's a really um, exciting phase for us now. And indulge me, you talk about that vision you want to go to. What would sit here today, December 2021, uh, what, what, what does success look for you personally and Verve December 2021 20, next year? Next year, I mean, I think we sort of, so we kind of in our planning, we've got like our long-term, the long, long-term vision. And the long, long-term vision for me is that by the time I want, I retire, I want to know that girls being born at that time are going to have the opportunity to retire with equality and have a quality, financial equality throughout their lives. That's sort of our long-term vision. And also to know that um, our wealth and our capital that's held in superannuation, which is over, you know, trillions of dollars is being invested for good and not bad. That's kind of the long-term vision. Um, and then our next sort of three-year horizon is we've got targets around how much money we want to be investing in certain impact initiatives, um, how, how the kind of financial coaching and services that we want to offer. So for us, we really want to be the number one destination in Australia for any woman who wants to learn about building wealth. And that could be any, any man or any non-binary person as well who, who enjoys the content that we produce. So we want to be that company on the top, tip of your lips when, you, um, when you're having a discussion with your friends about, um, you know, how do I save for a house or how do I save to move out or how do I um, pay off debt that you instantly like, hey, go and check Verve out. They've got this great video. They've got this great learning section. Um, so that's really where we want to we get to in that, in that midterm. And so for us, what does success look like that over the next year? I think it's bringing on more amazing people and building out our team. It's um, producing some really amazing content. It's making some really great investments in other businesses to help other great businesses get off the ground. Um, and it's continuing to provide really strong, um, you know, really aiming to continue to provide really strong returns for our members. 
I'm inspired. Before we close off, I've just got some rapid fire questions for you. So just short, sharp, and tell me what you think. So any founders that inspire you? Oh my God. Okay. Probably Alice Williams, who is a founder of Avira. She's also a good friend of mine. So this is a period pain electronic device. I love her because I've had period pain all my life and her solution um, really has been amazing. I don't experience the problem, but I absolutely love Alice as well. Uh, she's incredible. Should a business bootstrap or get funding? Bootstrap, but not to the point that you're going to put yourself through any form of financial pressure, stress, or put your house on the line. And the final one, what advice would you give to the uni version of yourself? If you could go back in time. I think just stress less and enjoy the ride. You know, I think I spent the last 15 years thinking I wasn't accomplishing anything, I wasn't going to do anything, uh, which was ridiculous. And I think you can just pull the pressure back, enjoy the ride and just stick to what you can control and make good decisions along the way. Follow, follow charm, I guess, is your advice there. Uh, Chrissy, thank you so much. I could keep talking for another two hours, actually, not just one hour. It's been incredible to hear about your journey, your passion and vision for changing the dynamic for females in Australia is so palpable that across the ethers, I can actually feel it. Um, thanks so much for being here and can't wait to follow your journey. Great. Thanks for having me. Wow. 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 What an incredible episode with Chrissy. So many twists and turns there in her career. So inspiring to hear about Verve. Educationally, a really interesting case study in IP, navigating IP when you're working with another company. So Verve is working with Future Super, another super fund who owns the IP. Then there's all sorts of stuff in founder relationships in there. So can't wait to explore that with you all in class. In terms of the podcast, stay tuned for uh, episode number three, uh, which will be coming next week. The founder of Hacker Exchange, Jeanette Chia. Again, it's going to be another really interesting conversation, this time looking at a completely different business model in Hacker Exchange. See you all in class.